0: hope and love with gentleness and compassion and forgiveness. And then maybe then we'll begin to look more like Jesus and this we pray in His name. Amen. Just okay well, Apparently, my mic was going out while we are praying, so we'll, we'll see how long this lasts. But, um, well, this morning, I, I did mention a few minutes ago that we are, we're, we're beginning a new series today, and it's one that's actually going to last 43 weeks. Um, but because we've figured that most of us have attention spans of about 43 seconds, in fact, they say if you're under 25, your attention span is 8 seconds. That if I don't get your attention in 8 seconds, I've already lost you. Um, that's fast. So most of you have already ignored me and are done. Um, but, but what we find is that attention span doesn't last long. So we, we may be doing the same series for 43 weeks, but we've divided it up into several weeks. And so we, we're looking at these first few weeks um, in a series we're calling Ashes. And from, from unexpected places, we find life. And so, in fact, we're, we're going to be reading the book of Luke. And so I'm going to read Luke 1, 1 through 4. You don't have to turn there because I'll be there very, very briefly. Um, but Luke begins this way. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So the book of Luke was written by a guy named Luke, who was a doctor, he was a he was a Gentile doctor, he was a, a, probably a, a Greek doctor, he was not Jewish, and so that's unique in the scriptures because um, very few non-Jewish people wrote anything in the Bible. In fact, I, I'm pretty sure Luke's the only one. Um, so Luke writes from this perspective that he, he came to know Jesus by the stories of others. I think sometimes we have this misnomer about the scriptures themselves because the early church didn't have any kind of Bible to work from. They had the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, and then they had stories they shared verbally. And so that's really the recordings of what we have in this, and what we call the Bible, because the Bible didn't exist for the first, basically, 300 years of the church. But once the Scriptures did exist, we have these stories recorded by Luke, and Luke was a doctor who recorded all this stuff, and he, he studied the testimonies of others, and he came to believe in Jesus, and so he writes this to a guy named Theophilus, who would have likely been some kind of Roman Roman important figure. And so what we see in this book is that he wants to tell people who Jesus really is. And so he says to Theophilus, hey, I want you to know this guy because it wasn't what I expected either, but it's changed my life. And so this is why this series we're talking about expectations and unexpected places that bring life. In fact, maybe you're like me, and, and much of your life has been overcoming expectations that didn't go how you thought they would go. In fact, that's, that kind of describes my life, because I am still to this day waiting for a particular phone call. I've braced myself that it's never going to come, but I am hopeful I mean, very, very little hope, but I, I had this dream, I had this child that I would get this phone call from an NBA general manager, and he would say, hey, we need a new guard for our team. And I think it's really likely I'll get this phone call today because I, I'm not fast, I can't jump, I don't play that much defense, um, I'm over 30, so I can shoot a little bit, maybe that will get me a phone call, probably not. You probably have other things in your life that you have unrealistic expectations for. That that expectation is pretty much far gone. Um, but I'm holding out hope in some kind of way that maybe I will live in a dream world that only I live in. Um, but we all have expectations of some kind. In fact, many of us today, or some other day, we'll, we'll go out to lunch somewhere sometime, and we go usually to places we've gone before, and we have certain expectations. We walk into some place that we have been before. You walk in, you expect you're going to order the same item on the menu, probably, or another item on the menu, and you have a general expectation of how good or not good it's going to be. And you may have a certain expectation of what your service will be like or lack of service will be like. And I, just a quick caveat, if you do go to, out to lunch on Sundays from a church, uh, and you've attended church in the morning, and you look like you've attended church, and maybe you mentioned something about church, make sure you tip well. If you don't, just stay home. I'm just going to throw that out there. Anything less than good tipping, don't go out. Um, too many people give the church a bad name through that alone. But, but um, what we begin to find is that we, we have an expectation that certain things will come on the menu. In fact, if I go to an Italian restaurant, I determine whether it's good or not by how good their chicken parmesan is. If it's not good, then that place is no good. It doesn't matter if it's phenomenal to everyone else. That's my litmus test. In fact, places like Starbucks and McDonald's make a living because they can basically repeat certain things over and over and over again. A few years ago, Starbucks invested in every one of their Starbucks stores, has the exact same coffee maker, and they grind their beans exactly the same way. Why? So that wherever you go, you have the exact same drink. So whatever your expectation is when you walk in, you walk out receiving what you expected to get. McDonald's copied that. I mean, others have copied that because we want to repeat what we've like, and so if we like it and we keep going back, we want to keep getting the same thing over and over again. But the truth is, most of life is about dealing with expectations that didn't go how we wanted them to go. Because we have relationships, and expectations happen in relationships. In fact, this week I was um, walking through the, the gym on Wednesday, and there's some moms and grandmothers who bring their kids in, and they play together, and and these kids have certain expectations about what's going to happen, right? Have you ever noticed this? They learn this really young. Like most children learn that if they cry, you will do everything you can to stop them from crying. So if I cry, you will feed me. I've tried this. It doesn't work when you get older. But, but if you cry, people will come feed you. In fact, what I learned on Wednesday is when they started crying, I walked out the door. So I don't know that they got fed. I'm assuming they did. But we all have expectations in relationships. In fact, I... I um, I, as a kid, my, played sports, and my mom would wash all my uniforms, but every once in a while, I wouldn't tell her about a game, or she'd forgot. And so I'd get up in the morning and go to grab whatever I needed to take, and it wouldn't be clean. And I'd say, Mom, this is not clean. And every once in a while, she'd go, well, I, I, you know, I'll wash it and bring it to school later today. But, but most of the time, she'd say, well, I have to work today. You're just going to have to wear it like that. Because I never clearly articulated my expectation or my hope. In fact, sometimes we have unrealistic expectations. Now, I mean, I expect every day when I go home for our house to be really clean and for our kids to be well-behaved and for dinner to be warm and sitting on the table. And of you who know me or my wife well are laughing right now because you know that's not true, um, what I more likely expect is for me to walk in and go, we well, picked up the house twice today. I know you can't tell. The kids ate at four o'clock because they couldn't wait for you. There's some stuff left for you if you want it. So I'll eat with you. That's more likely what it looks like in our house. In fact, I, I do premarital counseling with couples, and, and one of the things I always talk about, we, we have them take this like, test. It's, I don't, Test is maybe not the best way to put it, but, but it's just a big survey. It's, it spits out about 40 pages of information, and then we kind of walk through it as we prepare for their wedding. And, and a big part of what we talk about are expectations. Because I, I don't know how many times I've said now, you need to make sure you clearly articulate what you expect from one another. And I get like the same thing happens every time. They look at me like I'm an idiot. And they go, you don't know how in love we are. And I think to myself, I want to see you in six months. Um, Because then they come in my office and they want to talk and they go, I thought she would do this, but she does that. I thought he would do this, but he does that. And I say, and I want to say, I told you. Um, I don't. I just, we start talking about what's going on. But typically it comes down to expectation, We have an expectation of the way things will happen and in fact what we find is our disappointment comes in that place and we become often disappointed with God as well. Because we have an expectation that God will work in one way and he works in another. We categorize God and we put him in a box. God you have to act like this and this and this and if you come outside of that, if you want something to happen or you want a plan beyond what I can see in that box, I'm not okay with it. And our expectations are busted, and we don't know what to do with that. And so what we're really going to find is that the person of Jesus throughout this season, throughout this rest of 2017, when we look at the book of Luke, what we're all going to find with Jesus is that I thought he looked like this, but he probably really looks like that. Because what we're going to find is that the pictures we have in our Sunday school classes, or we don't really have them here, but, but if you grew up in the church, and you grew up with like the felt board, um, and you know what I'm talking about, if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's okay, you, you haven't missed out too much. Um, but... But you had these kind of pictures they would put of Jesus, and he always had like really good hair and bright blue eyes, and he was definitely white. I mean, you know, but Jesus really didn't look anything like that. I can see that with pretty good certainty. He lived in the Middle East. He was likely dark-skinned. If not, he was really burnt. He had dark hair. Wouldn't have been brown. It would have been black. Probably would have been kind of long, yeah, but it wouldn't have looked like it was a suave commercial right? I mean, this is this is what Jesus really looked like, and so what we begin to find is we have pictures of Jesus that aren't really who Jesus is, and so we hope as we explore the book of Luke together that we'll of who he really is, and we'll begin to see God not in a box that we've created, but we'll begin to understand the character of God as Jesus portrays him and shares with us, and so that's really our hope, and so that Today, we're in Luke chapter 19. I know that that seems a little out of order, but we're kind of going through the season of Lent. And so it made sense to start in Luke 19. uh, As we read this from Luke 19, verse 28. Uh, And as you're standing, as you're looking up the scripture, if you want to find it, what what we find is that what Luke wants us to understand is who Jesus is, why it matters to our life, and what happens when we come to know him. And so here's what Luke writes. Luke 19, verse 28 says this. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If they asks not ask you why are you untying it, tell him the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, "'Teacher, rebuke your disciples.' "'I tell you,' he replied, "'if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out.' As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, "'If you even you had only known on this day "'what would bring you peace. "'But now it is hidden from your eyes. "'The days will come upon you "'when your enemies will build an embankment against you "'and encircle you and hem you in on every side. "'They will dash you to the ground.' You and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him, yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So Jesus is, in this story begins um, with this road from Jericho to Jerusalem, but what you're going to find throughout this series is that we can't talk about everything in a text, or else you'd be here a really long time, or it'd be like 430 weeks, not 43, and so I didn't think you'd stick around that long. So um, what we're going to find is that, that we have to kind of skim some parts, and so we're not going to talk a lot about this middle section that says this... Um, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side, and no stone will be left unturned. It's this section where Jesus is warning them about the destruction of Jerusalem. In fact, Luke would have been writing this about the time that Rome had encircled Jerusalem. And Rome encircled Jerusalem, and then in 70 AD, Rome sacked Jerusalem, and the temple was destroyed. What Jesus is warning them here is, listen, you have this expectation about the way things are going to happen, but let me tell you, if you'll change your expectation, you can avoid something, but but the way you're going, you're not going to, and destruction is what's going to come. So the text begins with Jesus making this journey from Jericho to Jerusalem, and Jericho is the lowest point on the face of the earth, 846 feet below sea level. And Jerusalem isn't the highest point, but it's much higher than that, it's 2,500 feet above sea level. And so you have this 3,500 foot difference. It takes 17 miles to traverse. So Jesus starts in a place of death and desolation and it's a desert. And he ends in this Mount of Olives, this green lush place in Jerusalem. And so it's as if we're seeing this picture that Jesus is going from, from death to life. But what we really know is he's going from death to life. But, but he's really going to death again. And so Jesus enters the city, and he says to his disciples, Hey, go on ahead, and there's going to be this guy who's got this colt, this donkey, and you're going to get this donkey, and you're going to bring it back, and I'm going to ride on it. And, and his disciples are going, well, do you, do you know? Like, is someone waiting for us there? Do they know we're coming? And, and most scholars assume that, yes, Jesus had made prior arrangements, or that it would have been really, really awkward for his disciples if someone had actually stopped them. But they get this donkey and they go back to Jesus, and he begins to ride into town. And so it's this echoing of, of the Old Testament in Zechariah chapter 9 that this king will ride victoriously into Jerusalem. Now, ride in on a donkey. See, as Jesus rides in, he's making a loud, bold statement without raising his voice. He's saying, For all who are watching, I am, I am the king. I'm from the line of David. I'm the one who the, the Scriptures call to. I'm the one who said they were to come. I mean, he, he embodies courage and defiance because he knows there's a price on his head as he enters into the city, but it doesn't seem to stop him. What he comes in, he doesn't come in like the conquering hero, though. Because he, if he was going to declare war, he would have rode in on a horse. The horse was a declaration the king rode in on a, on a horse that said, we're going to war. But he rides in on a donkey, which says, "Peace has come." And see, I think we sometimes miss um, miss the anger of the mob, because that's what it was. It was a mob. Think of protesters today, or eight years ago, when they didn't get their candidate and they wanted elected, and they throw throw a protest. We see it today, this is what it is, this is an angry group of people, and so they stand on the street corner, and they're yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, God save us, God save us, over and over and over again. They're waving these palm branches, and they're laying their jackets on the ground, and so there's a fulfillment of the scripture, but there's also this plan for the way things they thought were going to go, but the way things actually go is radically different. People standing on the street corner screaming for violence, and are doing it under a word that they knew as God save us. Because they had an expectation of the way God always seemed to work. They had God in a box. And they expected that God's kingdom would come like all the other kingdoms of the world. It would come with the overthrow of those who were in power. And so they were waiting for Rome to be driven out. And this is what they expected. But the problem is, that isn't who Jesus is. That isn't who God is the same people who were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, God save us, God save us, were a few days later shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. Because sometimes, the way we think God's going to work, the way we think God is at work in the world is not who God is at all. Jesus took the servant's road, not the king's road. Jesus came in on a donkey saying, Nah, selflessness, sacrifice, humility, gentleness compassion, grace, forgiveness. That defines the kingdom of God and the people who are part. We're not going to overthrow with violence. That's not who we are. So all these people had this expectation of what was going to come and it's not what came because they, they, kept, they kept wanting a picture of the way God was going to work but that just wasn't who God is. So disappointed and angry And frustrated. And Jesus, at the end of this ride, he weeps over the city. He cries for what he sees because he says, listen, you just don't get it. If only he would know how much I care for you. If only you would be willing to see the world the way I see the world. If only you wouldn't put my father in a box. If only your expectations were my expectations and not your own. And we see the scene where Jesus goes in the temple and he says, You know, my kingdom's not about violence. We think, well, then he gets violent. It's the most angry Jesus ever gets. But he's not angry. Once again, it's what we talked about last week in terms of gentleness. It's it's being angry for all the right reasons and not for all the wrong. And so Jesus goes in the temple and he drives out the people who were there. He overturns tables and he kicks out the money changers. And and we go, Well, yeah, man, what's what's good with that? Well, see Jesus wasn't throwing out the sacrificial system, this understanding that they had to atone, they'd make right their relationship with God, but what he was throwing out was people who were oppressing others. So here's kind of a helpful illustration. So you had to, if you're going to give a sacrifice in the temple, you had to give up an animal without blemish. And so let's say you're going to give up a white dove because that was a relatively cheap sacrifice and most people could afford that. Well, if you bought your your dove outside the the temple, it'd be about five dollars. And so $5, most people in the world could pay the $5 in that day, and so they would pay their $5. They would get inside the temple, and then the temple temple people who approve the sacrifice would go, oh, there's a blemish on this animal. You can't sacrifice this animal. But we have one right here that is without blemish that you can purchase for $75. And so you would have to pay $75 for the one inside the temple. And get ripped off. And then if you came from all around the place, the only money that was accepted was the Galilean money. And so you would come into the temple and you would, you would come with your money from all around the world and they would say, don't worry, we can change your money. You give us ten, we'll give you five. And so they would make money off everyone who came in to offer sacrifice and pay the temple tax. So Jesus comes in and says, no. Like I'm never okay with God's people trying to take advantage of other people. That's not who we are. I'm never okay with this idea that that you can oppress those just because they're poor or you can oppress those just because they come from different places. I'm not good with this. But what really we see in this is Jesus is most frustrated, most brokenhearted. Because we have expectations, we have an expectation that the way things will go and we're disappointed when it doesn't go the way we want. So many of us in this room I've been disappointed with God. I've been angry with God. We've been frustrated that the way things went were not how we wanted them to go. We've been the same people who cut down branches and take off our jackets and say, Hosanna, God save us. Only to later say, where were you? Why did you do that? It's not what I meant. Why didn't you fix this? As we too have put God in a box and expect him to act a certain way. What Jesus is trying to say to us is, I'm with you. I'm near you. You expected I would come with violence, but I came with peace. You expected I would bring a sword, but I went to a cross. You expected this, but here's who I actually came. And so he takes our expectation and comes upside down and he says, I am present with you in your disappointment. I am present with you. In your heartache, I am present with you. God doesn't always going to answer your prayer the way you expected God to answer it. And so he tells this story. This is a story from a guy named Daniel Hans. Daniel Hans is a Presbyterian minister in the United States. In 1986, he and his wife Beth lost their three-year-old daughter, Laura, to cancer. Daniel and Beth watched in agony as their little girl faced nine hospitalizations and four separate operations in the last nine months of her life. Their hearts broke as they watched Laura die and they struggle to make sense of what has happened. In 1987, Daniel Hans released a book containing some of the sermons he preached throughout his daughter's battle with cancer and the period immediately after her death. One of them is titled, Caution, Your God is Too Big. Hans relates how he once surveyed his congregation, asking them about their disappointments with God. He asked them to share things they had hoped God would do, but that God didn't. People described times they had prayed for the life of a newborn child only to see it die. Of the, of the hope God would protect his people from violence, only to hear of an elderly woman being stabbed on her way to church, prayed for rain, for famine-stricken Africa, only to see starvation continue. To these disappointments, Hans now added his own. He had hoped God would heal his baby girl, but her condition only grew worse. Hans suggests that disappointments like these are the stuff of life, And if we read the scriptures, we discover that alongside the stories of miracles and amazing feats by God, we hear story after story of disappointment with God. Of times, God appears silent and inactive. He suggests that sometimes we remember only the miracle stories, and so we develop too big a view of God. Not that we can have too big a view of God's greatness and power, or too big a view of God's love and grace, but that we can have too big a view of God's will. God's action in our world is not always to perform the miraculous, but more often than not, to walk through our suffering with us. Hans suggests that a view of God that is too big is harmful both to believer and unbeliever. When our understanding of God is exaggerated, we declare that God will do things he does not intend to do, at least not regularly and in all situations. This is what Jesus came for. To take our expectations and our disappointments and our brokenness and our hurt. He says to us, you can lay it at the foot of the cross. You can lay your wounds and your pain and your brokenness at my feet. Because you came to me with your expectation. I turned it on its head. But I came to be present with you, to be near you, to allow my spirit to be with you in everyday life so that no matter where you were, no matter what was going on, I was always near. See, he's grieved over us in the moments we've shouted Hosanna in our own way and then disowned him minutes later. But he wants to take our hurts and our pains and our disappointments and our frustrations and our plans And allow us to leave them at the foot of the cross and say, I want to die out to these, and I want to see what happens when I really let you lead my life. I want to see what happens when I'm really a follower of Jesus. I want to see what happens when God's people really look like people who follow Jesus. It's why this question that N.T. Wright asked us, if we would be participants in what God is doing, he says this, as we arrive at Jerusalem with Jesus, the question presses upon us, are we going along for the trip in the hope that Jesus will fulfill some of our hopes and desires? Are we ready to sing a psalm of praise, but only as long as Jesus seems to be doing what we want? The long and dusty pilgrim way of our lives gives most of us plenty of time to sort out our motives for following Jesus in the first place. Are we ready not only to spread our cloaks on the road in front of him, to do the showy and flamboyant thing, but also now to follow him into trouble, controversy, trial, and death? See, the rest of the world doesn't need people who are part of a church, cut down more palm branches, and take off their jackets and lay them on the road. The rest of the world needs people who are part of the church to live out of authentic community where they share life with one another. Where they share in such a way that out of our deep convictions for who God is and what God has done through the person of Jesus, that we share that story with others in everyday life. That we share how through Jesus we find this life-giving life. It can only come and through his death and resurrection, this hope that we find. In fact, one of the ways that we do this so well together is we take part of a meal. And, we, and I've never seen a table big enough for all of us. If, we, if I ever saw that, it would be pretty cool. But I, I've never seen a table big enough for a few hundred people. What I've seen is lots of little tables, and I've seen a way that we can gather together to celebrate on a regular basis that God invites everybody to come to his table. He says there's always room for one more. In fact, he says, come as you are right now. You don't have to change who you are first. You don't have to have your life together. In fact, you can be disappointed with me. You can be angry with me. You can feel like your expectations have not been met. And he still says, come to the table because I love you and I want to know you and I want you to know that you are deeply loved by me. And so we, together here this morning, will partake in a meal together. We dip it in a cup. Well, eat it. It's a reminder that on the night he, bread, he broke it, saying his, to his disciples, this is my body broken for you, this is my blood poured out for you, for the first is because I love you. And what he's really saying is you're always welcome at my table. There's always an extra seat. And if you think you filled that one, then there's another chair that you didn't see before. But he says you can come. In fact, invite others to come. And so we partake of this meal together as a reminder of God's grace for us. In fact, one of my, um, what well, became one of my favorite experiences of ever taking communion together—the Lord's Supper, Eucharist, whatever you want to call it. I was speaking at a camp in northern Michigan, and this like really stuck and show a lot of emotion. And and, and um, he was looking, I was like, "You're right." He goes, "Yeah." He goes, "That was just the best communion I've ever had." I'm thinking, like, the bread was good. I didn't think it was that good. I mean, what 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 are you talking about? He says, "Well." He said, for whatever reason, that's the first time I've ever taken, taken what we call intinction, where you hold the cup and you dip. He said, i would never done that before. He said, but something happened when I was holding that cup today. I, I was holding it, in, and as these kids would come by, and they'd dip their bread in, and they would pull their bread out, the, the juice started to spill into my hands. He said, I began thinking about how that's what it's like for God. God can't be contained in one container, that God's grace permeates every aspect of life. In fact, it spills out. It becomes messy. It's a little sticky. It doesn't look how we think it should look. It's not as clean as we want it to be. And this is the way God's church is. It's not, it's not always clean like you think it should be. I mean, the building can be clean. That's a different conversation. But, but sometimes we're kind of a wreck. We come, all needing God's grace, and we come recognizing that His grace extends beyond what we think it should, and it doesn't, doesn't get contained in one cup. In fact, it can't be contained. It spills over onto the floor, every aspect of our life. And so this morning as we take these elements, everyone is invited to our table. Well, what it says when you take these elements this morning, it says that I I want to follow Jesus. I want to know this real Jesus. I want to really know who he is. I want to know why he gave his life up for us. I want to know what this means for me. I, I want him to be the center part of my life. And so this morning we invite you to come to the table to say yes to him, to say yes to, to leaving my disappointment and my frustration and my broken expectations at the foot of the cross and trusting in my life to him. The one who gives life. The one who, who Luke writes us this whole book to say please come find him because he's searching for you and he loves you. Father this morning we thank you for this time together. For the way you take our broken expectations and our hurts and our frustrations and our pains. We thank you for the way you come near to us and we don't we don't deserve it, but you do it anyway. So, Father, this morning we pray that we recognize that through these taking of these elements, we lay down our expectations, our disappointments, and we give them to you. It doesn't mean we're not hurt or frustrated or even angry, but it means that we recognize that you are with us. And so this morning, Father, we thank you for who you are, what you continue to do, and may it be that as we take these elements today, they are life-giving grace to us.